0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer. All lowercase. That's shopify dot com slash special offer.
1: Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm uh, not here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. We are all in different places. It took How it took guys? them
0: two hundred and ninety-nine episodes to separate us, but uh, one catastrophic trip to JFK can break down the streak. It can break down a person. Evan, uh, uh, tell us tell us about your current locale. <laughs> I'm a broken man on the <laughs> Belt Parkway coming back <laughs> from JFK. Evan, there's no place I would feel worse for you than, uh, than where you are right now. <laughs> I'm still excited about the show, though. Oh, yeah. Great time to listen to a podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, perfect time to listen to a podcast when you're stuck in endless rush hour traffic coming back from JFK.
0: Max, I I asked this question of you sincerely. Who is on the show this week? This week on the
1: show is uh Helen Rosner. Hi. She is a food writer at the New Yorker for that she was the executive editor of Eater. She's uh a podcaster and uh she's great. I've been looking to have her on the show for a long time. And uh, I'm glad we finally pulled it off.
0: Uh, we have not had many food writers on the show. I would say it's been something of a blind spot for us.
1: Yeah, we had uh, Adam Platt on. and uh, that's a great episode. I've wanted to have Jonathan Gold on for some time. But I've also wanted to have Helen on for a long time. And uh, there was a lot to talk to her about, among other things. She was quite close with Anthony Bourdain. So we talked about that and food writing and all kinds of stuff.
0: I have a quick announcement here, which is... On a previous uh, introduction, I led people to believe that uh, there would be no more T-shirts available after uh, last week's show. Now, when you do that, you're supposed to turn off the sale, but I let it lapse and it started another three-week cycle. So the bad news is... It, you didn't get an exclusive T-shirt that you'll still be getting a T-shirt. That batch has been printed where there's one more batch being printed, which will be, uh, I think it's available for like two and a half more weeks. Then for real, no joke, there will be no more T-shirts for quite a long time.
1: But these are really in their own
0: way. Also exclusive. This is, I mean, this is the rare second generation, uh, first iteration, second generation batch. Very exclusive all you hype beasts out there are going to want them. Longform.org slash shirt.
1: Right now, I'm just going to have a, our editor, Janelle, go back and play the tape from last week <laughs> when you were clowning me for the, the crazy idea that we would ever keep this running.
0: Well, it was an accident. I'm not happy about it. But our listeners do win, so therefore we win.
1: Can I tell you about another way that our uh, listeners can win, Aaron? Please, please. They can go to readthissummer.com. Do you remember last summer, Evan, you and I went to the Decatur Book Festival. We brought some of our favorite writers uh, down to talk about their books. And all summer we were telling long-form listeners about these great books that they should read. Do you remember that? I'll never forget it. It was a great time. Uh, that great time is happening again, except this time we are not bringing the writers. Uh, the Ringer's Shea Serrano is bringing the writers. Oh, and, Shea uh, Serrano. And an incredible... Yeah, Shay's going to come on the podcast. I'm going to have him on soon, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about this and all all the other great stuff that he is doing. But if you go to readthissummer.com right now, you can see the writers that Shay is bringing to the uh, Decatur Book Festival. It's all a project done in partnership with MailChimp. They've got uh, some fantastic books on there, and I encourage you to start reading them along with Shay and his group, and then uh, get down to Decatur for the book festival. Readthissummer.com
0: well thank you to MailChimp they, uh, they've been uh, behind us from the very beginning and behind many other great projects like the Decatur Book Festival uh, cheers to them
1: and now here's Max with Helen Rod. I think I know that this is the last long form podcast that's ever going to be recorded in this studio. Wow. All this shit is getting moved out tomorrow.
2: Oh my, I'm I'm honored and sorrowful.
1: Well, you know, it's fine. We're going we just got another one like across the street. It's going to be fine.
2: Is it even is it nice? Should I feel like slighted that I don't get the new cool one?
1: No. I think okay. it, I I mean, no, definitely no. not. The new one's gonna feel a little sterile for a while. We get
2: to like trash the room. Yeah, you can, can do whatever go, you want. we go like full Johnny Depp on? The <laughs> yeah, podcast?
1: yeah, you can do whatever you want. This is all. <laughs> it's not like I'm. I'm just gonna move this all tomorrow <laughs> in ninety degree heat, sweat all over it. Uh, oh, yeah, boy. this is it. This is the last one. We've been in the studio for like a year and a half. Wow, so it's gonna be gone.
2: Well, cheers to this room, man. Hey,
1: hey. Cheers. Cheers to you. Thanks for uh, being here at its end with me.
2: Yeah, thanks for bringing beer. <laughs>
1: I feel like there's so many things that we can talk about, and I don't know. Where do you want to start?
2: Oh, that's a terrible question. I don't know. You asked me here. That's not fair. (laughs) Yeah, you start. You guide it. Okay. You ready? I'll push back and reject all of your options.
1: All right. When did you start writing about food?
2: That's a good question that I- um, It's not that good a question. No, it's a terrible question, because I get asked that a lot, and it's weird, because I get asked that a lot, and I still don't have a good answer for it, and I should sit back sometime and- when did you first get paid? It. Do you remember that? Um, yes, I do. So I was a, a book editor for my first sort of real job out of college. I was an assistant editor at a book publishing company, and I was the assistant to the director of cookbook publishing. So it's arguable that I was being paid to write about food at that point because I was writing, like, catalog copy for cookbooks. But when I left that job after three years, I went to become a restaurant blogger, for menu pages which depending on how old you are and where you live you either are aware of or unaware of but very like, aware yeah so menu pages was a website full of menus and um it was started by this guy greg who like literally walked up and down the streets of new york city hand collecting menus from restaurants like physical stacks and stacks and stacks of menus and he mailed them all off to this data input facility in india and turned the contents of those menus into a website and like before seamless and grubhub which i think now own menu pages that was the way you found out what restaurants served and it wasn't just delivery places like every single menu in the city i mean this was like the early like hand crafted internet yeah you know when was that i started working there in i want to say like oh seven oh eight and it had been up and running for a couple years at that point um and i think greg's like original collection of hand collected new york city menus are in the collection of the New York Public Library wow. now. Like they're like an artifact of the history of the <laughs> internet and the city. But menu pages, when I started working there, had expanded to maybe five or six cities in the U.S. And uh, I was hired to do the Chicago site, even though I lived in New York. Um, I grew up in Chicago, so that was sort of like the tentative connection mm-hmm. to it. And um, there was this room, much like this room actually, it had kind of a similar scrappy vibe. And there were like seven people in their early 20s sitting in this room, each one of whom was assigned to a different city in the United States. And, like, our job was to collect menus from restaurants. Like, all day we would sort of sit there, like, calling restaurants and asking, like, have you updated your menu lately? Or, like, talking to, like, our stringers who were literally people we paid, like, eight bucks an hour to walk up and down the streets of whatever city, hand-collecting menus or taking photos of menus. And But all this is to say that, like, the thing that was the lure, right? Like the carrot that got us in the door for this incredibly stupid job was that each city had a restaurant blog. So I was the editor of the Menu Pages Chicago blog, which at the time was the only semi-professional restaurant blog in Chicago. It was before Eater had expanded to every city. It was before Grub Street had expanded. Actually, so then this is the whole like weirdness of luck and the world i started working at menu pages in about a week after i started there the whole thing was sold to new york magazine score and all of the menu pages city sites were converted into like grub street sites and like suddenly i was a writer for new york magazine and it <laughs> was like oh okay that works <laughs> that was like that was pleasant
1: <laughs> how much does menu pages sell the new york magazine for do you remember it
2: was a couple million dollars I and mean, it was like a I don't think there were, like, you know, Coke parties on yachts, but, like, Greg had, a, like, a sweet apartment
1: after that. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. You got to feel, like, pretty good for someone to just, like, walked the streets of New York picking up menus and made a couple million bucks.
2: Yeah. He was an enterprising, smart guy. He, yeah. He, like, had a good idea. He sold it. I, like, I think New York Mag kind of capitalized on this, like, we have menus thing for a while. And they, like, very quickly realized that it was a huge, like, logistical nightmare to run this site.
1: I feel like there was a time in like the early 2010s where like New York Magazine was how I found restaurants.
2: Yeah. So I was that person for a while.
1: You were that person. Well, you it, were telling me where to eat. I, you know, um, Critics Picks.
2: The Critics Picks. I was the keeper of the Critics Pick.
1: Whoa. This is. I really I, followed your tastes.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I stayed at New York Mag for a while and I kind of I eventually became my title was very grand. It was like online restaurant editor. Right. I was like 25 and an idiot. And, um, And what I was supposed to do, what I did was um, those little blurby reviews that go with every single restaurant listing on New York Magazine, which I think to this very day are like, it's the most comprehensive, best kind of objective single point assessment of all the restaurants in New York City.
1: Has their like corner been taken a little bit?
2: I like Yelp and Infatuation. I mean, yeah, you know, it's a weird game, but like the way it would work was I would assign freelancers to go write these little capsule reviews. And I had like a stable of people. And, you know, this is my first time assigning freelancers and editing freelancers. And, and I would send people out like, I'd be like, oh, you know, this, you know, Moroccan restaurant just opened in Queens, like you have a $75 limit, go eat a meal or two there and file a hundred words. And each one would come back with this checklist that was like, you know, is it handicap accessible and like what are the hours and does it serve alcohol and is there wi-fi and like all of the kind of stuff which again like manual input right like it came as like a google doc yeah like not a google doc we didn't have google docs back then it came as like a microsoft word attachment and one of them was do you think this should be a critic's pick if so why so like they would like put a little tick in and it was up to me like me, with nobody vetting me. Like, it was just, <laughs> I was like drunk with power. Just me sitting that's there. Be,
1: that's gotta be like a huge amount of money just like sitting in your hands. I know, if you like, critics pick someone. Well,
2: cause like everybody sorts by critics pick first. I, I mean, I, I don't know how many people still. I mean, like definitely it, like,
1: assholes like me. That was the only way that I like. For, I did.
2: I mean, yeah. sure. Like, even when I was the person doing it, I was like, oh, well, like I said, this was worth it. But like, you know, and, and when actual critics like, you know, Adam Platt and Rob Page and I and Robin Reisfeld would, like, actually, like, write real rigorous reviews, and when they filed their reviews, they would say, like, this is a critic's pick, this is not a critic's pick. And so those, you know, I did not have any <laughs> adjudicatory You're, power sit over Sit down, but, Platt. Like, yeah. Wow. God, I haven't thought about that in so long. That was, like, 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. We're, like, a. I mean, I don't want to assume anything. I'm very old. I, I'm old, too. Yeah, yeah, we're old now.
2: It's weird. I don't feel old. There was a moment... I don't know. There was a moment like three or four years ago when I realized I had spent so much time kind of being the youngest person in the room everywhere mm-hmm. that I worked. And all of a sudden there was no, it's like the death of the middle class. Like there was no transition. Just suddenly I was the oldest person in the room.
1: Well, when did that happen?
2: Um, it kind of happened when I started working at Eater.
1: Yeah. Did, did you like being the oldest person in the room?
2: Sometimes in the same way that I sometimes liked being the youngest person in the room.
1: What's what, what? Give me like the pros and cons list.
2: There was definitely the moment where I. So after I left New York Magazine, I went to Silver Magazine, yeah. and where we met for the first time. I remember. remember it was like, "Thank you for being patient with my bizarre." I have no idea what I was doing, but like, so I ran the website for this food magazine that basically didn't have a web team before i started like i was part of a, a very small team of people who you just brought
1: like, me there to like convince an editor that you guys should run features yes right? literally yeah. that was, I, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. you were like a me. total prop yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was just like people read yeah. long articles and you're like thank you please leave
2: <laughs> i think we gave you a snack
1: or yeah, something. yeah yeah yeah. Like, that was great um, i had lunch
2: but it was um my job at sever was to be like the one person in a room of suits who knew how the internet worked you know yeah. and like That was really frustrating, but also at times very intoxicating. I
1: think there's this crazy role in media that maybe you're describing, which is like the young person who can talk to old people without driving, like without making old people feel bad about themselves.
2: Yeah, I'm not totally sure I succeeded at that part, but it was my job. job. It was totally my job.
1: Like that. Yeah, that. And now those people are like our ma- management,
2: that, which this is you're describing my life. Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. So I, there was something really intoxicating about being the only person in the room who, like, a recognized that the internet was here to stay. Like, and we're this was not like 1999, which yeah, is yeah. when a lot of places <laughs> were having this conversation. This was like 2010, 2012. Like, I when I left to go to Eater in 2014, we were still having these conversations of like no like really the website is legitimate journalism like like it's okay if a story only runs on web because in fact nobody reads the fucking i mean it was like a whole (laughs) but um i was the youngest person in the room by decades you know i was like in big fancy scary meetings and i think i didn't realize how big and fancy and scary they were yeah which um It's very hard for me to tell if I was actually good at this. Like, I think that in ways I was good at it and was hobbled by the people I was talking to. And I think in ways I was very bad at it because I didn't realize that my job was to be this interpreter or translator. But I don't know. All I do now is write.
1: Hey, I'm going to put Helen on hold for just a second and tell you about a podcast that I think you should try. If you are listening to this podcast, which you are because you are uh, listening to this podcast, uh, my hunch is that you are also someone who likes documentaries. And if you like documentaries, you probably watch them on Netflix. Here are some documentaries perhaps you watched on Netflix. One is called um, Wild Wild Country huge colossal hit evil genius there are all kinds of incredible documentaries on netflix and now there's this podcast it's called you can't make this up it's from netflix and it's about true stories that sound too crazy to be real every episode features conversations between podcasters journalists comedians and the people who make some of your favorite netflix shows wild country evil genius all these good ones uh spoiler alert I am actually going to interview someone for this show, so if you've enjoyed this interview so far, uh, you should download and listen to You Can't Make This Up because I'm going to be interviewing uh, the Oscar-winning director of Icarus. It's going to be great, I hope. I really hope I don't fuck it up. Uh, One more thing I should tell you, You Can't Make This Up, is being produced uh, by Netflix in partnership with Pineapple Street Media, which is a company uh, that I work with. I feel like I should divulge that. Here's the thing you should do. You Can't Make This Up, it's available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening to this right now, go find it, subscribe. You Can't Make This Up. Thank you for listening, and let's get back to Helen. Do you think that we're about to need explaining?
2: Yes. No. Yeah. I, I, yeah.
1: Like, what don't you get? What internet don't you get?
2: I don't get Spotify.
1: Really?
2: Yeah, that's like an old one too. Like, I should get it. I know how to like search for a song and listen to it, but like, it's still not my primary way of listening to music. I still sort of like to possess an MP3.
1: Hmm. Okay.
2: That's probably my most like old. I mean, I get Snapchat. I get tumblr i don't even like there's probably something i don't even know about
1: yeah like that
2: jingle jingle of internet
1: (laughs) there's definitely some like massive blind spot that i have but i think also like i never figured out how to not be careful on the internet oh that's my i think that's like you
2: don't post nudes
1: well (laughs) no. but i also just like don't even like tweet something and forget about it
2: oh i do that a lot i yeah though i never i don't know i was a you know, I had a blog the way everybody had blogs back yeah. in the, you know, bronze age of the internet. And and I wrote on my blog religiously, and it was kind of what got me the menu pages job that turned into the New York Magazine job that turned into, like, my entire career. Um, And I wrote multiple posts a day, you know, like, this is because that's what you did on your blog. And I very rarely wrote about my actual life. Like, I wrote, I think that what I did and, and what I have tried to continue doing, what I, like, if there is some kind of through line that I try to cultivate in, like whatever persona is inside, whatever thing I do is I wanted it to feel very candid, but I don't actually want you to know anything about me.
1: Do you feel like that's like still your game?
2: It's my goal. I don't know how successful I am at it. I try, I mean,
1: because you think you're like too revealing.
2: I go back and forth on this. Like I've been thinking about this a lot because Anthony Bourdain died a week ago and one of the things that he was incredibly great at and that I have been kind of marinating in in the days since his death is how extraordinary his facility was with giving the impression of intimacy without actually revealing almost anything about his inner life and his true self. You know, not that there was a falsity, but like his persona was true to who he was, but it was not the entirety of the person. And he was so gifted at, making people feel seen, which is such a clever way of making them think that they can see you.
0: Hmm.
2: And, you know, isn't that the goal?
1: I don't know. I don't know about the goal. It's a good goal, I guess. I don't know. Well, I I saw this thing uh, just a couple of minutes before you walked in which was that you've, like, been crying all day. I have been crying
2: all day. <laughs> I w- well, I watched season two. I watched a couple of episodes of season two of Queer Eye on Netflix, which I told myself was for professional reasons because I wrote about season one. And so I wrote I wrote a piece that was kind of an appreciation of Anthony, the food and wine guy of the five guys on the new iteration of Queer Eye. And uh, it went surprisingly negative like i i mean it was well received by some people and then like a lot of people including a couple of like fairly high profile people with very large celebrity sized twitter followings decided that it was like really cruel that it was this very vicious and mean piece mm-hmm. um like Ted Allen, who I have interviewed before and with whom I thought I had a very like cordial and friendly relationship, like tweeted this thing. He was like, Helen, like, I can't believe like the New Yorker would hire you for this hit job and like was tagging me and was tagging the New Yorker and like tagging in my bosses and was like, this is like vicious attacks. I mean, it was he was so hurt and he's close friends with Anthony and he was the food and wine guy on the first season of Queer Eye and it was like really personal. And he has followers in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And I was baffled because I thought that I had written something that was, like, this guy is totally charming and weird and, like, really silly and clearly not as great a cook as his cohort are good at whatever the things they're supposed to be doing are. But, like, he's competent enough and, like, there's something really alluring and charming about him and, like, what does he tell us about contemporary masculinity and, like, sexual identity and blah, 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 blah. And so anyway, that had kind of been bubbling up again over the last couple of days because in season two of queer eye Anthony is precisely as incompetent in the kitchen and very pretty on camera and like completely useless with everything that he says when he opens his mouth as he was in season one and so I decided it was like a professional obligation to watch the second season of the show which is engineered in a lab to make you cry hysterically at every episode have you seen queer eye I haven't it's so cathartic I should watch. I mean, every episode is just like this beautiful, bonding, self-discovery, like, like let's embrace the detoxification of masculinity and love ourselves and hug each other and, like, dismantle homophobia and gender-based oppression and, like, all of this stuff. And it's just, like, these five incredibly, deeply, powerfully good-looking gay men, like, tootling around Georgia in a pickup truck. It's so perfect. It's such a, like, goodness antidote to everything in the world. So, anyway, I watched that for, like, two hours today and just fucking cried.
1: Have you always been, like, uh, someone who, like, uh, feels this much?
2: That is a deep question, man. That makes up for the very bad first question that you asked me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I haven't eaten anything and you made me drink a beer. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I think so. Um... I haven't always acknowledged that I was feeling them, but I think the feelings are always there.
1: When did that part happen?
2: You know, therapy is a, is a journey. There have been times that I have believed in, like, the Vulcan analytical brain above all, and there have been times when that has been exhausting, and I've taken a break from it. I think where I'm at right now is that, like, I exist in a state of hyperbole, and I think I kind of always have maybe 7 or 8 years ago a really good friend of mine made me this beautiful like drawing for my birthday that she gave me in a frame and it said H is for hyperbole so you know i think i i like feeling feelings and it's taken a long time for me to recognize that there's no such thing as like the flawlessly rational human brain you know like humanity is emotion as data has taught us from Star Trek The Next Generation. But like, I don't know, I think that if you have the opportunity to feel deeply, I don't know why you wouldn't take that.
1: Has it made your writing better?
2: I hope so. I definitely don't write from a place of emotion. I um, am very much a like Vulcan rationality writer in the sense that I write very structure first. And I'm a total structure junkie. And I think that I create those frameworks so that I can have room within them to feel emotions. I took a lot of poetry classes in college. I was like a, a lot of like poetry seminars. I wrote a lot of terrible poetry and um, and I really, really loved formal poetry. This is all actually coming together for me right now. It, it makes perfect sense. It's so narratively pat. It's like disgusting. If I were editing this story right now, I would cut it. But um I really liked formal poetry because I liked having an externally imposed structure in which you could frolic. And I mean, this is not a new idea, right? Like, I'm not the first person who thinks that structure is freedom. But I think that I have a really hard time articulating emotion. I have a very easy time feeling it, and I have a really hard time translating it into something that I feel confident is being clearly communicated with as little possibility for misinterpretation on the part of a reader or consumer as possible. And uh, I believe, like, the things that are really important to me are like structure overall and forgive me I've said this before on other podcasts but like if I were ever going to get a tattoo this is what I would get a tattoo of is that it doesn't matter what you say it only matters what they hear hmm. and it's my job to make sure that the gulf between those two things is as narrow as possible and that there's this little ambiguity between what I say and what you hear as, as possible and that's often it's never easy but it's certainly easier in a realm of arguable objectivity, you know, like to create emotion in a reader requires a huge amount of really thoughtful work on the part of the writer in a way that forces you as the writer to remove yourself from the emotion you're creating in the reader, you know? like if I want to set you up for sadness, I have to create emotional stakes. I have to create investment in whoever I'm talking about or whatever it is that they're working for or, or me or whoever, whatever the story is about. And the craft of making stakes, you know, the craft of setting up a potential downfall, a potential loss, whatever it might be, I think is not something you can do well if you're currently feeling the feeling you're trying to create in the reader.
1: Because that's like technical work.
2: Yeah, it's technical work, but also like, I mean, have you ever, like, just felt absolutely jubilant? I mean, we talk about it so much. I think we, the, like, the broad writerly we, like, we talk about it so much when we're talking about things like sadness and despair and sorrow and, and, you know, certainly now, like, those sort of, like, political stakes. But I think that it all becomes really clear when you think about it in terms of positive feelings, like, like, happiness and jubilation. Like, when was the last thing, when was the last time you read something that, that made you exult? as the people on the page exulted, you know, like, like he achieved his dream or like she got the job or like they've made the discovery, like they made you like sit up and cheer and it happens, but it happens so infrequently, yeah, it's you right. know? And if you're feeling those feelings in your real life, right? Like if you have an, a moment of extraordinary joy, like the quiet joy of like being surrounded by love and your family or the extraordinary jubilant joy of like victory or celebration, it's inarticulatable. You know, like you can't call up like your best friend or your mom or whoever's not in the room with you and be like, oh, my fucking God, like it happened. Like they're just like drinking tea (laughs) 37,000 miles away. Like they're just like, oh, that's cool. Like you can't articulate joy like that while you're in the moment, Mm. you know, and I think that it happens on the page, too. You know, it's simpler to articulate sorrow or anger or despair because we have incredibly powerful and precise vocabularies to express those. But when you're still feeling the feeling, it's really hard to make someone else feel it.
1: It's interesting that thing you're saying about like uh, that gap, you know, that, the, that your goal as a writer is to have the smallest possible gap between like um, what you mean and what people hear. That sounds close to me to that Bourdain description in a way, like the smallest possible gap between the way you live your life and the values you espouse.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think artifice takes a toll. You know, like playing a character becomes a drag after a while. Literally, that was a good pun. That was an unintentional pun. Um, it's a lot of work to maintain something that isn't real. At a a place that I once wrote for that I will not name, their stock and trade was... Menupages.com. Yeah, no, it was it a fucking menu site. Um, no, a place that I once wrote for it still publishes um their stock and trade is like beautifully crafted personal essays usually of like cultural or emotional discovery and and you could sit down and crank out a parody of one of their things just like note perfect and they asked me to write something and i was like you know like you write all these things about people who have these profound moments that are like so crystalline and clearly identified and like they were person A before the thing happened and then they became person B. And it changed the essence of who they are. And I don't think I have any of those. Like, And, and I'm sure I do. I just, I I don't think I've lived a life that has been marked by the sorts of discoveries and tra- often tragedies that are the hallmarks of, of that sort of personal essay, for which I'm very grateful as a human being, though it has made trying to sell personal essays slightly difficult um but you know i i i was like you know i don't really have anything that comes to mind that has happened for me in this way and they were like oh like you know it doesn't have to be real
1: whoa
2: yeah i mean (laughs) and they didn't say it in so many words but they were like you know just like pick a theme and like make it work and i was super grossed out
1: by that but all my worst fears about the personal (laughs) essay industry confirmed
2: oh man we we could do several hours about my feelings about the personal essay industry but
1: can you give me like your 30 seconds
2: i think that it's predatory it's especially predatory towards women and marginalized communities because i think that the personal essay as a format has been broadly perverted into confessional memoir instead of actual true essays. And so it winds up being a monetization of personal tragedy. And when you're particularly a young writer or a writer who's coming to the writing community from a place where you might not have a lot of privilege or advantages, often what you have to sell is your tragedy and your struggle. And so when you're early in your career, you wind up selling the biggest story of your entire fucking life for 50 bucks. And you've told it, and you haven't had an editor who cares about you working with you, and you have some social media manager who just pulls out the juiciest, most prurient pull quote and slaps it all over the internet, and you can never have that back for the rest of your life, and you can never sell that story again.
1: And also it becomes like your resume on the internet. Yeah,
2: and I think that it's absolutely important to tell your stories and to interrogate your traumas and to re-empower and reclaim your pain, but I also think that you should make several thousand dollars for it, <laughs> at least.
1: Yeah, that's the problem, right? It works if, like, the tab is not 35 bucks.
2: Yeah, and I also think that – um, and I did this. I mean, like, early in my career, and again, I have had the most sheltered, privileged, lucky, stupid life. Like, I wrote stories that I thought were, like, edgy and fun and cool, and they were, like, about my life. I mean, this goes back to what we were saying before about how, like, I, I try to be emotionally honest in everything that I do, but I don't necessarily – the need to write about like my daily life or more importantly the people in my daily life but I was doing that kind of early in my career and it was because it was what I had to give Mm -hmm. and I look back on that and I regret it so deeply not just because I gave away a piece of myself like not that there was like fucking anything like it was like I wrote a funny stupid piece for the hairpin rest in peace about the first time I ever got a bikini wax and it's funny and it's cute and you should go read it but like I shouldn't have done that. Like, I shouldn't have decided that the thing that I wrote was about getting a bikini wax, not because that's not great and not because my editor wasn't wonderful and not because the hairpin wasn't wonderful, but because the version of that story that I can tell now, like with an additional seven or eight years of context and things that I know and the skills that I've worked hard to attain and the way that I understand that telling a story is not about what I get out of it as a teller, but what you get out of it as a listener, Hmm. I could do it so much better. I could do it so much better, and I can't do it again. I mean, I guess I could, but it feels like that's cheating.
1: I feel like if the hairpin still existed, you could do it again on the hairpin. Oh,
2: yeah, because they were the best. They would totally like Like, the hairpin revisited, 100%. They would totally be down with that, and that's why they're great. But... I mean, I edited essays for a really long time when I was at Eater, and and so, yeah, this has been, like, the dumb arc of my career, is, like, I spent four years as a blogger, and I spent three or four years as basically a manager, and then I spent three years at Eater as an editor, like, an in-the-shit-up-to-my-elbows-in-manuscript editor, and now all I do is write. So I just, like, block these out, and...
1: All right, so let's talk about that, that last thing you said. You had, like... The discrete uh, chunking of my career? Yeah, which is weirdly in, like, college chunks... But like blogging chunk, managing chunk, editing up to your elbows in manuscript chunk, and now writing. I'm interested in the last two in particular.
2: Yeah, they're the most interesting.
1: (laughs) Help me understand why you made that switch. Like why, you were running Eater. No, I wasn't. You were the executive? I was the
2: executive editor.
1: That's like running-ish.
2: Ish, Ish. you know, it's, but no, uh, Eater has an editor-in-chief, Amanda Kluge. She's incredibly talented. She knows what she's doing. Um, I started at Eater as the features editor. And I was hired shortly after Eater and a handful of other websites, Curbs and Racked, were acquired by Vox Media with a V as part of a big deal. And part of that acquisition was that Vox gave Eater a huge chunk of money to basically professionalize itself. Like, Eater had been this incredibly indispensable and phenomenal and genre-creating and defying network of blogs that basically created restaurant gossip. I mean, or didn't create it, but, like, elevated it to an art form. And um, suddenly they, they had a fairly massive influx of cash to hire like, capital J journalists. And um, that included hiring a couple of restaurant critics and hiring me to launch a long-form section because at the moment, long-form was really cool. It remains, obviously, incredibly cool. But, like, that was, like, the heat of the, like...
1: I remember that time. You
2: know? Like, everyone was just like, oh, like, we need parallax scrolling. And, like, it was, like, a thing. (laughs) Did you just almost spit out your beer?
1: (laughs) I'm... There's like the community of people on earth who (laughs) think parallax scrolling jokes are funny (laughs) is not large, but I am one of them. Yes.
2: Oh, man, I'm playing right to my crowd. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I had written a couple of things that were long, and I was a a very aggressive consumer of feature writing, and I, I read kind of in a structurally dissecting way, and um so when I came to Eater, they were like, we want long form. Here's a lot of money. Like, go get big names. Like, it was a dream job. It was everything you want. Like, I had, like, a fat fucking wallet to pay people with. And I was, like, I wasn't having to sell people on the assignment. I was having to sell them on the publication, which is an interesting kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, how do you like, do that? People had heard of Eater, or sometimes they didn't because I, I tried really hard to reach out to people who are not food writers. But um, they knew Eater as a gossip site. You know, like, the gawker of food. And um, and I would have to kind of do this whole spiel where I was like, no, like, I'm going to rigorously edit your piece. Like, you're not just going to, like, dash off 1,500 words and I'm going to spell check it and throw it up on a site. Like, you are going to file seven to 8,000 words to me and we are going to go through some, like, bloodbath track changes things and we're going to have some really long phone calls and we're going to, like, have therapy sessions and it's going to be real and it's going to have like professional art and a copy editor and a fact checker. And it's going to go up on the website and it's going to look different than the other stories on Eater because it's going to have a different layout. And then we're going to submit it for awards at the end of the year and you're going to win awards. And that was basically, and also like, I'm going to pay you a lot of money. And, um, and usually it was that last point like, got <laughs> people to say, yes. um, and for a while it was just me. Like I was supposed to turn out one story a week, which was a lot but we kind of we kind of pulled it off ish Mm -hmm. for a while and um it was really fun
1: what was the stuff that you were most proud of from that year time
2: oh man um so i was only working alone for a fairly short period of time maybe six or seven months and uh by the time i left the features team was this incredible just like murderer's row of talent it was me and megan mccarran who's a Still at Eater is, is writing these amazing op-ed pieces. And Matt Buchanan, who had been the editor of The All and had been in The New Yorker and BuzzFeed and stuff like that. And uh, working with the two of them was just the most amazing and creatively fertile thing I could have ever hoped for in my entire life. Like, it was just absolute heaven. And um, they're both so smart, and they're smart in such complementary and different ways. And I felt like I – you know, you, you you sometimes hear, like, TV writers talking about how awesome it is being in the writer's room and you're like oh f- I fucking hate you. Like, You make so much money and you have <laughs> snacks all the time and like you get to just hang out and bounce ideas off of each other. You guys and, didn't have like, snacks in either? Well we did. We did but we weren't making a lot of money. And, um, but like that was what it felt like. Like it was incredible working with them and some of the pieces that came out of that time like there was um, Megan found this amazing writer who had been on the ground in South Sudan in these refugee camps and who had sort of in her time there, realized that basically the only way that women could make money like women refugees from Sudan in South Sudan the only way that they could make money was by opening restaurants in these refugee camps and like these were like sort of low cash economies and we wound up creating i think it was just a phenomenal story that took kind of the entirety of this huge and tragic I don't even know what the word is. Just like like this tragedy in the world and these refugee camps. That this particular refugee camp um, Yida was not officially recognized by the UN as a refugee camp. It's technically a refugee settlement, and so like the people who were living there didn't qualify for food aid in the same way. And it, you know, you, you those of us who end up writing about food sort of say ad nauseum that food is a lens. You know, that you can tell any story about anything and make it a food story if i just like add a sandwich <laughs> and this was so perfectly it like it was about how women find power in contexts where it's extraordinarily limited and it was about the refugee crisis and it was about the way that institutions that purport to aid can sometimes harm and it was i mean it was it was everything it was everything at once and it was beautifully photographed and working on it was just such a pleasure and then uh we also did a piece that i really adored working on it kind of like it literally came to me in a dream this is so dumb but like i woke up one morning and i was like i had this dream i was like slacking i was like i had this dream that we like mounted a camera in a corner of a restaurant for 24 hours that was you, the portland restaurant yeah so it was what was just, it called it was Ooh. called one night at kachka
1: oh man that that's one of my favorite stories of all time yeah yeah that's I, amazing Thank I you. i loved it I, I really really did because I will admit that uh, sometimes food writing drives me crazy. I agree. And uh, sometimes like the food world in general drives me a little crazy. Yeah. And that story, which like is basically a TikTok of a night in like a nice restaurant in yeah. Portland. From all facets, like front of the house and back of the house and how a restaurant actually works was so illuminating and so not fussy.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I I had this in one of my, like, many amazing and sort of soul-searching and brain-exploding conversations with Megan when we were kind of working on Eater in general. The One of the things that she said once that, like, we kind of kept coming back to, I think I had this, like, printed out and on the wall next to my computer, was lean in on the obvious. Because I think you spend so much time off trying to think of, like, what's the story nobody's telling? You know, like, how do I find the unfindable? Right. And you can drive yourself crazy doing that. And... The Kachka story, I think, predates the actual articulation of that phrase, but it really is the embodiment of it. It was just like, what if we're just like, this is what fucking happens at a restaurant? Like literally, like we we the biggest challenge of the entire piece was finding a restaurant that was willing to open its books to us. Um, So when you're in the story, it's a truly multimedia story in every way. Um, Like as you scroll down the page, there's a tally that runs along the side if you're on desktop, and it's slightly different if you're on mobile. That it's structured in these sort of time-stamped vignettes. So it like starts with like the lights go on at nine in the morning or whatever. And as you scroll through these timestamps, this sidebar updates with how much money they've spent and how much money they've made and like how many orders of dumplings have they sold and how many shots of vodka have they sold. And so as you read through the day, you know also what's happening in the back. And at the end of the story, we also like, they gave us their monthly financials too. So we could like prorate like how much was one night of rent and how much is like the equivalent of one night of like getting your grease trap cleaned and how much do your lawyers cost i mean it was like literally everything so at the very bottom he'd be like okay like they took in six or seven thousand dollars in the course of that night and the cost of that night was five or six thousand dollars and the margin was nothing and it was beautifully photographed like we had we basically sent like a swat team into the restaurant it was like three reporters two videographers two photographers and they just were there literally all day like in this relatively small restaurant, getting up in people's faces and interviewing diners and hanging out in the kitchen and counting the number of vodka shots that were sold. And, you know, we wanted to take a four-dimensional mold of a restaurant, you know, like, what does it look like to be here as time passes and to live within the space? And also, in the course of that, to illustrate that this isn't necessarily glamorous. You don't necessarily make a lot of money. I mean, Kashka is one of the most famous restaurants in America. It's at the top of everybody's like top lists and it's won awards and it's wonderful. And the food they make is incredible. And their cookbook is incredible and they barely make any money. Mm -hmm. And that's super weird. Like if you're doing that well in the music industry or you're doing that well as an actor, or you're doing that well in sports, you're a millionaire and the food world, not uniquely, but intriguingly, has i think probably the biggest gulf between like level of success and fame and level of remuneration
1: sometimes similar to writing
2: yeah probably actually i mean
1: that's like the number one thing that we hear from people about this show is like can you talk more about money and it's not like we don't ask no people don't want to talk about
2: it i married a guy who worked in finance (laughs) like I there's no other way to say it like it's super important to the fact that I can have the life that I have Mm -hmm. I mean I've been fortunate to like have some very well-paying jobs but I've also had some shit-paying jobs and like where where does
1: the current job you have writing for the New Yorker fit with like your last job as the executive editor of Eater
2: comparable with an asterisk which is that so technically I'm not full-time at the New Yorker I'm half-time so if we were going to prorate what I'm getting paid into a full-time job, it's comparable to what I was getting paid at Eater. Right. But I'm not getting that much. I'm getting half that much. Like, prorated, it's about the same. Mm. I write for places that aren't the New Yorker also, and it helps round it out.
1: Yeah. But, like, marrying someone who works in finance.
2: Is- it's I'm not going to lie. It's great. I mean, like, look, we're not, like, we don't have, like, a house in the Hamptons. It's not, like, that kind of finance. But, like, I I have been very lucky to fall in love with someone who – likes numbers you know (laughs) and um, it's enabled a lot for me I think that you know the it's a complicated and weird conversation to have because I don't want to sound smug I don't want to be like "Ah, I'm rich because like I'm not rich but I'm not broke Mm -hmm. and it's I have been broke I grew up broke and I was broke for a huge portion of my career and I'm still not used to not being broke but um,
1: I think it's pretty helpful for people to hear that one way you can continue doing this beyond your, like, 20s or whatever is, like, something else happens that makes it possible. Yeah. You know, and it's, like, I don't know.
2: And the something else can be a lot of things. Sure. You know, like, and I've been lucky that something else coincides with, like, love and marriage. But, you know, something else can be, like, you don't live in the most expensive city in the United States. Or it can be that you, I don't know, win the lottery. I mean, there's... I've been really lucky, and I marvel at my luck all the time. And the luck began with birth, and it has continued to this very day. And some of the luck, like being born to the parents that I was born to and the place that I was born and the time that I was born, I had no fucking control over. And I think over the last decade plus, I have worked really, really hard to be ready for the luck when it happened so that if it were to happen, I was, like, worthy of it. And that helps, you know? I think like... How do you do that? I don't know. You work really, really hard and you try to be the best. And your dad pays your phone bill. (laughs) I don't know. Um... I think that for me, at least I have to always pursue something. I think of it in terms of like Babe Ruthing things like, you know, how he like pointed his bat at like left field. It was he, his finger. Was yeah. it, I don't know anything about sports, but this is how I think of it is like I, I always used to think of it like I Babe Ruthed my career. Like when, literally when I was a book editor, I was like, I want to work at New York Magazine. And I didn't make that happen, but some weird magical thing happened. And the place that I went to work was just suddenly acquired by New York Magazine. And yeah. I suddenly worked there. And then after a couple of years there I was like you know I want to work for like a food magazine and I talked to people like I networked I hate that word but like you know I tried to make myself the person that they were looking for and it happened and Mm -hmm. it's not that it happened to me because I was passively there and shit fell on my head like that was a part of it but I also tried really hard to be the person for whom shit falling on my head could become fruitful and the same thing happened with Eater and then the same thing magically happened with The New Yorker. Like, yeah, how'd you I, land that gig? I have no idea. If there, I, I don't know. I still don't even know how to say, like, in a cool way. Like, yeah, I work for The New Yorker. Like, it's Everest. I mean, I yeah. wake up every morning paralyzed with terror and invigorated by delight. I mean, it's so strange. There are so many wonderful, amazing places to write for and to read and... My mom is so proud of me right now, and i she's always been proud of me. She's a lovely and loving mother, but like, wow, I think I didn't know what it felt like to have your mom be proud of you until I told her I was going to be working in the New Yorker.
1: It's good juice. Yeah.
2: I feel like such an asshole saying that. It's so strange. It's very bad for your imposter syndrome. Like I feel like a garbage person who's faking everything and then it's like, well, I, but I have this job that apparently they only give to good people. (laughs)
1: It's bad for your imposter syndrome because it like, it makes it impossible to tell yourself the imposter story. Kind
2: of. I mean, I still definitely think at all times that I am full of crap and about to get fired. But uh, I don't know. I've hung on so far.
1: Can I see you like a couple more food questions? Yes, totally. Yeah,
2: instead of me spiraling into like narcissistic asshole territory, I love this. Desk. This
1: is the long form podcast. You're, you're <laughs>
2: <laughs> as long as that's not like the pull quote on longform.org. dot <laughs> <laughs> uh, All
1: right, here's some questions I have. Okay. Uh, one question is: I think my favorite thing that you've ever written is uh, you're like, oh, to chicken tenders. Oh, thanks. I remember at the time though that came out when you were working at Eater, right? Yeah. Here's a question I had at the time. which have That essay uh, ran in Guernica. It did. And won a James Beard Award. It did. You were writing for a food site. I was. Why did your incredible James Beard Award winning ode to chicken tenders not run on the website at which you worked, which covered food?
2: It was awkward. Um, No, the real answer is that it was an assignment. Rachel Reederer, who was an editor at Guernica and who I've known for a really long time, in an interesting way, so she's now actually a, at the New Yorker too, um, and she also runs Granta. I was her LSAT teacher. <laughs> That's how we know each other, back in like a very early version of our lives, where we were both going to become lawyers.
1: Did you take the LSATs?
2: I took the LSATs. I got into law school. I deferred for like four years, and then I decided to stick with the low-paying writing job, which I've never regretted—not for a second. I mean, going to law school. I took them too. Yeah. How'd you do? Did fine. Yeah, I bet you did. You're a smart guy. But <laughs> so Rachel and I have known each other ever since I taught her Elsa at prep class, and we like bonded over the fact that we both clearly should not be lawyers. Um, she reached out to me because so Gernica was doing an issue called the boundaries of taste, and um, she wanted me to write something highbrow about a lowbrow subject, which is my favorite genre. Of That's your game. It's my game. It's, it's sort of not what I set out to do, but it's what I do.
1: It's such a good game. Yeah cuz a lot of the writing in your genre is highbrow writing about highbrow shit and it sometimes drives me crazy.
2: Well, I you know, I think that most good writing or non-crazy-making writing exists within that juxtaposition or a juxtaposition, right? Like you want profiles that make villains out of heroes or heroes out of villains, you know, you want cultural commentary that elevates the downtrodden or tears down the idol. And if we're just saying, you know that saying that everybody loves it's great. Like that's there's nothing there. And like the thing everybody hates, like you can spin some amazing insults, but like it's not going to have like durability and resonance. And the same thing goes for these sort of appreciations. I mean like a highbrow appreciation of caviar is a punchline. I mean, I I love caviar. Like I think it's terrific. I would eat it by the bucket. Like I once for my birthday went and bought like a literal like pint of caviar and I ate it with a spoon as an intentional act of stupid indulgence because I fucking love caviar. But like (laughs) the reason that this story is a thing I can tell is because I mean, and I didn't think of this while I was saying it, but it kind of wound up being a perfect illustration is that I like, compared it to a pint of ice cream and i said i fucking love caviar i mean like you have to inject the real into the fantastical and vice versa in order for it to land without you sounding like a boar or a dick
1: that's such a good description of why i like your writing and why i don't like a lot of food writing because tell me if i'm wrong
2: no i think you're completely right a lot
1: a lot of food writing is like not exactly like uh (laughs) let me wax poetic about this vat of caviar but it is let me wax poetic about this like four hundred dollar dinner
2: yeah and i it's a challenge of food writing i think that um a lot of food writing is like that a lot of food writing is not like that and the cliche of food writing right is the snooty rich person writing snootily about a fancy dinner and there's nothing in that for anyone that's self-congratulation that's smugness and it's not even aspirational because there's no room in that kind of writing for a reader who isn't already that person Mm -hmm. so i don't know one of the things that i love about food writing which i have a very contentious relationship with food writing as a category so of course it's the category i've worked in for my entire career but um i don't know maybe that's why I've, i've been successful at it is because I fucking hate food writing but like
1: why do you fucking hate it
2: well because of this right because I think that, that there's the easy versions of the stories like we talked before about about the sort of easy versions of personal essays where you're just kind of selling your trauma to the lowest bidder often there's the easy food story which is like you know sometimes it, it intersects with selling your trauma to a low bidder like you know my father was an alcoholic and we had a contentious relationship and he made this one version of like beef wellington every christmas and it was the one time that our family had a feeling of unity and he died and we felt his absence at christmas the following year when beef wellington wasn't on the table and like for all his flaws i loved him here's a recipe for beef wellington right like that's the food story that nobody likes right or the one where it's like i stood by my grandmother's side as she folded the pierogi and i looked at the veins on the back of her hands and i thought of the nazis that she fled and like that's important to you and it's important to your family but you're not doing anything in that story necessarily to make it important to the many many people you would like to have read it right like Mm -hmm. you you and you have to make a case for any story that you tell like any story and I think that in food writing and I don't know if this is unique to food writing I'm sure it's not but it's the category that I know best in food writing there is such a tendency to avoid making a case for the importance or necessity or urgency of the story that I'm telling right now or the fact that the story even needs to be told just because it has a decent recipe at the end of it or because it has a lot of really good adjectives. And good food writing shouldn't feel like food writing. It should just feel like good writing that happens to be about food. It can have a recipe at the end. You know, it can be beautiful. It doesn't even have to have a plot. It doesn't have to have an arc. It can be a vignette. but the food itself is almost never enough. It has to be everything around the food and it has to be who you are as a person eating it. Like, where did you come from? Like, what do you take as normal? How does what you take as normal differ from what I take as normal? Like, wh- like food is so fundamentally intimate to our bodies. You know, like, everybody eats in a way that everybody does not wear fashion or consume technology or watch television. Like, every fucking person on the entire Earth eats. And the way we eat and what we eat is informed by a multifarious concatenation of global and political and social forces. You know, like, why are foods in equatorial regions so heavily spiced? Why? is fish preserved in salt in some places and in brine in other places and smoked in other places. And it's, the answers to these questions are about politics and war and geography, like the determinism of geography. Like there's sandy soil over here, so I grow this kind of vegetable. And there are sloping grassy hills over here, so I graze cattle. And there's abundant fresh water over here, so we fish. I mean, like, you get into the history of the entire fucking earth. You know, like you dig deep enough into any single story, like the beer is sitting on the table in front of us, like this bottle of water here, like the bodega beef patty that you eat when you're hungover. Any one of those is a crystal for the entire history of all of humanity and probably the entire history of the world. And in food writing, it is so close to the surface. Like all of that is right there. So like, why would you not take advantage of that? Why would you just make this like, oh, I really like this spaghetti because it tastes good. I mean, you can. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes I just want a fucking recipe. But like, you know, some spaghetti is extruded through copper molds and the copper creates a subtle texture on the exterior of the noodle that makes it hold pasta sauce in a different way. Like it becomes this like almost fractal surface. And when dried pasta started being made commercially in huge volumes, they started using steel dyes in the extruders. And so the pasta lost that and they started being really smooth and perfect. And the way pasta related to the sauce fucking changed. And like, that's crazy, right? (laughs) Like, literally, like, industrial design changed the microscopic ridges on the exterior of pasta, which changed the way we eat pasta. Like, I, I don't know. that. Like, every story could be that story. You just have to put 10 more fucking minutes into it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting very agitated.
1: I, I think you should be <laughs> agitated. I'm just going to throw out some other f- food cliches. Yeah, and you me. can continue to like debunk them. All right, I don't know the world very well. It's not like a world I've, I've spent a lot of time okay. in. It seems like it's full of assholes.
2: What world is it?
1: Seems like it's um full of more assholes.
2: The writers or the chefs? The chefs. Yeah, Famous people become famous. Fame is weird, and chef fame is particularly strange because um, chef fame is relatively new, and the generation of chefs and restaurateurs right now who are at peak fame are largely people who entered into the industry without the expectation that they would become famous. The whole idea of the celebrity chef in the way that it currently exists is a relatively new concept, like last Mm -hmm. 20 years. And uh, you decide to become a musician or you decide to become an actor and like being a public figure is part of that, right? Um, It would kind of be like if tomorrow suddenly everybody got really obsessed with architecture and like you know, all these blogs started springing up that was like, oh man, like this junior architect at, you know, Leviskin has left to go to I want to say the names of law firms, like some other firm, like that's what happened to the food world like suddenly like this huge media apparatus existed that was starved for chefs and restaurants and recipes and content, content, content all the time and we didn't have it to fill it, like there are thousands of fucking musicians, there are thousands of actors, there are thousands of novelists even, but like there were like maybe 11 chefs who had like set out to be actual like public figures and so websites like Eater and Grub Street and magazines like Bon Appetit and Food and Wine like created celebrities like they said like we like you you're talented you're mediagenic you're interesting you're gonna be on the cover and this is a very long-winded way of saying that a lot of chefs are assholes. I don't mean this as a defense of their assholery at all, but like I think a lot of it is because it's really fucking weird to suddenly have people care about you, you know?
1: Do you feel like people have suddenly started caring about you? Yeah, it's really weird. I hate it. Why?
2: I don't know. It's very strange. Like I didn't want to be the person talked about. I wanted to talk about other people.
1: Well, I guess I think that's part of what I was getting to was like, it seems like a fraught world, particularly right now. The food, the food world. The
2: food world. Yeah, I mean, are you? Do you want to talk about Me Too? Is that is that where we're going with this? The sexual not, harassment in restaurants.
1: Not <laughs> even. Although, in some ways, the Me Too stuff in restaurants felt like the most inevitable of oh, in all of yeah,
2: them. totally.
1: I think I mean more like, just from the outside, and I could be wrong. You like that the idea that like a bunch of people got famous that didn't plan on getting famous, and didn't really ask for it, this is interesting. But I wonder. Just from the outside, it just seems fraught. Like it just seems like there's, um, there's a lot going on. It has a lot to do with ego. Yeah. And and I wondered um, how it felt to be a part of it.
2: I don't think I ever thought of myself as part of it. I
1: watched it. I don't um, know if you've talked to your mom though. You you write for the New Yorker. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, but you know I'm not in Aspen, Colorado right now, which is where the Food and Wine Aspen food festival is happening where like all the chefs are there right now right well maybe it ended like two days ago and it's not like I made some conscious choice to like be antisocial and not go to Aspen with all of the chefs but I've never been to a food festival you know like I'm not going to pretend I don't know all, a lot of people like I, I've i been covering this world for a long time and like you know I I know folks but like I'm not there are people who are in it they're like an incredibly wonderful and talented writers and reporters who are like in it and in part by accident and in part by intentional cultivation i have tried to stay a little bit outside it um so watching this world go from zero to 60 has been exhilarating and strange and deeply cynicism-creating, but also incredibly jubilant and cool. Um, I have been part of it in the sense that the people who chronicle a movement are as much part of the movement as the people who are making things happen, but it's not my story. I don't know. I, like, it... (sighs) it has been strange to especially since i've been writing for the new yorker to have the things that i say matter in a way that they didn't matter earlier in my career and this was the case at eater too but it really was amplified with the sort of the force of the new yorker behind the things that you write i have had opinions on things since day 1 and they were just my dumb opinions and now
1: they're the New Yorker's dumb opinions.
2: Well, yeah, they're proclamations, you know, and and that has required a certain recalibration of my recklessness levels, which I miss sometimes. I miss the times when I could just, like, get on Twitter and, like, tear the fuck into someone, which I still sometimes do, but I try to hold back on it. I But, like, it was cathartic, you know, when I had, like, 500 Twitter followers to just be like, oh, like, this month's Bon Appetit totally fucking sucks. I mean arbitrarily, right? Like whatever. Um which I would never do now. And not because it because it would not be cool or nice. Like suddenly
1: You're not an underdog.
2: Yeah. Yes, that's exactly it. I went from being even though I've been saying like I, I feel like I'm on the outside, I went from being an outsider to being an insider. Like by by business card, if not necessarily by choice. And there's nothing worse. There's nothing more damaging or kind of secondhand embarrassing to look at than a person who's on the inside who strenuously refuses to acknowledge it.
1: Well, I think that's what I was asking. is like, how does it feel to be on the inside?
2: I don't know. I feel like a suit. I feel like a sellout. <laughs> it. Uh, I like that people answer my calls. You know, I like that I can get responses to my queries and that I don't have to sell myself as a person worthy of being spoken to when I'm trying to chase down a story. Um, But I don't want to become a person who is comfortable because I think that comfort is the sort of thing that leads to, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's not stagnation. It's worse than that. I feel like you want to offer me a word here, but you're doing the very good interviewer thing of just letting me fill the silence. Comfort is lovely. It's intoxicating, but it's like, do you ever read the Phantom Tollbooth? No. Oh my God. You've never read the Phantom Tollbooth? I don't think so. Okay. Your homework assignment after this is that you should go read the Phantom Tollbooth. It's by Norton Jester. It has illustrations by Jules Pfeiffer. It is an incredibly important book for a lot of reasons. It's basically the heir to Alice in Wonderland, and it's perfect. But um, the Phantom Tollbooth follows this boy named Milo, who drives a toy car through a magical tollbooth and ends up in a a world of basically metaphor made real. And he finds himself in the doldrums, which in the world of the Phantom Tollbooth are an actual physical place, not just a state of being. And the doldrums are kind of a swamp and when you enter the doldrums you lose all will to do anything and you slow down and you become sad and you eventually sink into the quagmire of the doldrums and you die and you never leave and while you're in it you don't realize that anything is wrong you're just like no i'm gonna stay here like everything is normal like inside your head you don't realize you're in the doldrums this is also i think now that I think about it, like a very potent metaphor for like actual depression and mental illness, but like you're always yourself, right? Like you're always kind of at your general set point of comfort inside the doldrums in the Phantom toll booth, and you don't realize that you are sinking into the quagmire and close to death. And I think that that's what happens when you become comfortable with being an insider. I think that's what happens when you become comfortable with the idea that people are listening to you. You start thinking that everything you say is worth hearing and that's death that's death like at the point where you conflate I have a platform with every single thought of mine is something that other people need to hear and know about and is worth projecting out into the world as if it is gospel or magical insight like that's where the platform becomes toxic and I don't want that to happen. I don't know how to stop it. <laughs> like, I hope that I have, like, friends who love me enough to tell me if I ever start going down the path of, of like, stupid public opinion. But I don't know. It's early. I've been doing this for, like, six months. Like, I don't think I'm there yet.
1: I think you're doing fine. I think you're in fine
2: shape. <laughs> I have no idea.
1: Uh, I want to ask you one more thing and I'll let you go. Okay. I was going to ask what you think that world lost uh, when Anthony Bourdain died, but instead I'm going to ask um, what you did.
2: There were a lot of levels in which this was a loss, sort of bracketing out the fundamental, like actual loss and tragedy of his death and the stupidity of his suicide. And I say that like very intentionally, like, the illogic and irrationality of suicide which is so tragic um he was without question the most famous person in the food world and in fact one of the things that drove me absolutely crazy reading the outpouring of love after his death was how frequently he was identified as a celebrity chef or a food star um Because I think that by any objective measure, he certainly wasn't a celebrity chef. I mean, like, God knows he, like, did not become famous for any of his cooking. But he wasn't a food star. I mean, Parts Unknown was not about food. There was food on the show, but, like, it was no more about food than, like, Happy Days was about food. Like, sure, like, a lot of it took place in a restaurant, but, like, we don't call that a food show. But he was the food world's one huge, huge, like. Supermassive black hole of celebrity in the food world and um when he spoke you know emperors trembled if he said something if he made a pronouncement which he did often everybody listened and it mattered like he could just say offhandedly like you know tripe is the single greatest meat in the world or whatever it might be and like suddenly like armies of bros would be like only tripe like we're only eating tripe and like every restaurant with something of tripe on the menu i mean like it was incredible the weight of his approval like how valuable that was and there are lots of stars in the food world and they are wonderful people who deserve and do great things with their celebrity alton brown andrew zimmern but there was nobody who is Anthony Bourdain. Like, there's nobody. He, it is almost, he's the Pope. I mean, it's like, in. but like they could replace the Pope, right? Like the Pope dies, you get a new Pope. There, he was absolutely singular in both the structure and trajectory of his gravitational effect on the culinary world. And that has been something that in the week plus since his death has only become gradually real um but i super feel it especially with like there's been a, a lot of shit in the last couple of days with sort of me too related things where like he would have eviscerated things with a tweet you know and like we no longer have this like hammer of righteous justice so that's one big level um on a much more intimate level he was um I don't want to like overstate my intimacy with him. I mean, we were friendly. There were some places that like covered my remembrance of him in the New Yorker, like very kindly, like lovely pieces that sort of were like, you should go read this thing that Helen wrote about her good friend, Anthony Bourdain. And like, we were not good friends. And I feel really protective of that language. Like, I don't want to claim an ownership of him that wasn't mine. but we did have, this is where I'm going with this, we did have a very long-running text chain making fun of people in the food world, <laughs> like, viciously mocking a very specific set of two or three people. And it was really fun. And, like, because everybody is a dick, right? Like, I think this is this is another truth, along with, like, try to marry a rich person if you want to be a writer, is, like... Everybody is an asshole and everybody is a wonderful person there are of course certain exceptions there are uh, like uh, some very powerful people in America right now who are just unequivocally assholes and don't have the good part but like I felt really lucky that I got to like have that side of him like this sort of thing and he was funny and smart he also just like he was a great fucking writer. Like he's a great writer, and I am not just saying this because we are on a podcast about writing right now. Like his television celebrity was so extraordinary that it kind of eclipsed everything else. But like the dude was a tremendous writer, and he was an incredible reader, and he had such a phenomenal understanding of all the things that we were talking about before, like the sort of like benevolent manipulation of the of the audience, like. I guess I didn't use that exact phrase, but, like, that's how I think of it is, like, all of of creative work is ideally benevolent manipulation of the people you want to consume it. And he understood that so well, and he studied it. He honed it like a craft. I mean, like, he was a total cinephile, and he loved films not just as films, though he loved them as films, but, like, he could take, like, things that he learned from watching films, like structural tricks and narrative tricks, and apply them to the written word and vice versa and Watching him distill all of his inputs into these masterfully crafted outputs was amazing. And talking to him about that was like the most profound privilege. Hmm. I mean, I learned so much from him and not in like a dumb like funereal. I learned so much from him kind of way. Like I literally like learned how to be a better writer from reading his writing and from talking to him about writing. And like I don't have that anymore. And that's. sucks balls like it's awful like it's super fucking sucks and it's not like i've lost the person who i call when i'm in crisis or anything it's just like there was something that i didn't even realize was an anchor and it is suddenly gone and a part of me is untethered and it's a small part like it's there are a lot of other tethers holding me down but like there's a little bit of me that's flapping in the wind
1: helen thanks for coming on the podcast (laughs)
2: Thanks for having me. I should mention that I've consumed two beers over the course of this. You did great. Yeah, all right.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors. Read this summer. Go read along with Shea Serrano and everyone he is bringing to the Decatur Book Festival. And also go try that podcast I was telling you about. It's called You Can't Make This Up. It's from Netflix. It's all about their documentaries. If you are listening to this podcast, without a doubt, you're watching Netflix documentaries. Go listen to that. Thanks to them. And thanks most of all to Helen for coming in and recording the last podcast in the studio I'm feeling very emotional. I also realized as soon as we stopped recording that there were uh, two pieces of Helen's that I love and didn't ask her about. And I'm just going to mention them here so they go in the show notes because you should go and read them if you have not. One of them is about uh, MSG. And uh, here's the thing about MSG. It's totally fine. You should eat it. It's amazing. The second thing is uh, a piece in Eater about Olive Garden. Also totally amazing. Uh, Go read those. We'll see you next week.